Edward McKendry Bounds, more often called E.M. Bounds, authored a number of small books on prayer. His books are considered classics on this subject. In the late 1800s, Pastor Homer Hodge was organizing a large ministerial convention in Atlanta. A friend of his that knew E.M. Bounds made the suggestion that he invite this man. And at his friend's recommendation, he invited E.M. Bounds to speak. He went to the train station, and when Mr. Bounds stepped off the train, Pastor Hodges was disappointed. He felt he had made a mistake, uh, as E.M. Bounds' appearance was unimpressive and didn't match his preconceived expectations. On the first day of the convention, E.M. Bounds spoke on prayer, and altogether he spoke for ten consecutive days on prayer. Pastor Hodge lodged Mr. Bounds at his house, and he slept across from the room where Mr. Bounds was. At 4 a.m., E.M. Bounds had gotten up and made some noise. Hearing this noise, Pastor Hodge got up himself, went across the hallway, opening the door just a crack, was able to both see and hear E.M. Bounds on his knees praying. He stood in the hallway and listened and thought to himself, he won't disturb us, he'll finish soon. But Homer Hodge was shocked to hear him pray from 4 a.m. until late in the morning. He prayed literally for hours. He repeated that same procedure each morning for 10 consecutive mornings. After that convention and before Bounds departed, Pastor Hodge, having been so impressed with this man, turned to him and asked if he would mentor him. And E.M. Bounds agreed. The first thing he required Homer Hodge to do was to get up each morning at 4 a.m. to pray. He called it the great while before day hour, a phrase E.M. Bounds had gotten from Mark 1, verse 35, where it reads, Jesus rising up a great while before day. And he did that in order to pray. It is said that by the fall of 1912, E.M. Bounds, at age 76, had worn out all the young colleagues that he was mentoring. Then he approached Pastor Hodge and said, It is now time for us to get up at 3 a.m. to pray. Hodge suggested that 4 a.m. was fine. Four was early enough, but Bounds wouldn't budge. So intense was E.M. Bounds that he woke at 3 a.m. praying and weeping over the lostness of mankind. After breakfast and throughout the day, he would go into the church next door and he could be found on his knees there and often staying on his knees until mealtime. Compare that to a recent poll that said across the United States, an average evangelical Christian, such as ourselves, prays five minutes per week. Not per day, five minutes per week. I have confessed in public that probably my greatest sin is that of prayerlessness. I don't pray as I ought to, and that bothers me. Nehemiah was a man of aggressive action, as we're going to see. But notice before he did anything, he prayed. Now let me review some background for those that haven't been here. Nehemiah had a unique position. He was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes was the head of the ancient Media Persian Empire. It was 445 BC. And Nehemiah was in Shushan, the palace of that empire. Nehemiah had been assigned to assist Artaxerxes as his cupbearer, meaning that he acted as a combination butler and 
bodyguard. As he sat there in the palace, his brother Hanani and some of his friends came to see him. Those men had just returned from Jerusalem. Nehemiah asked those men some questions about the Jewish inhabitants in Jerusalem and about Jerusalem itself. He was told that the people were in great distress and trouble. And reading between the lines, Nehemiah learned the people were victims of Gentile anti-Semitism. And he was told that the actual protective wall around Jerusalem had been broken into pieces and the gates, those massive gates, had been burned. The remaining debris and rubble would be similar to the devastation from tornadoes in different cities each springtime. Nehemiah's response after hearing that announcement was to weep and mourn and pray and fast. And he did that for four solid months. Remember, Nehemiah didn't have to be concerned about these problems at Jerusalem. He's 800 miles from there. He has never been to Jerusalem. He was born in Babylon, in the Babylonian captivity, so he's never been there. He had a successful, secure government position. He was the king's right-hand assistant. He didn't have to be bothered. He didn't have to care. If no one went to Jerusalem and rebuilt that wall, it wasn't going to change his status in the empire or remove him from his comfort zone. There are people that are promoted, such as Nehemiah had been promoted, but then after that promotion begin to suffer what Charles Swindoll calls promotion erosion. Promotion erosion. People promoted to a managerial position or an executive position, and then in that advanced position become prideful and start ignoring the people that helped them get there, sometimes calling them the little people. Understanding God's organizational chart, there are no little people. There are certain individuals in upper management positions that have gotten substantial raises and bonuses. At the same time, these men were orchestrating corporate downsizing and letting faithful long-term employees go. That's unethical and that's immoral. Nehemiah didn't suffer from promotion erosion. Although he could have just ignored this unfortunate situation in Jerusalem, he could have just dismissed this announcement from his brother and could have gone on about his business. He could have been apathetic. A teacher once said to his class, define apathetic. No one responded. He repeated himself, would someone please define apathetic? And there was continued silence in the class. And then one kid just sort of leaned back in his chair, folded his arms across his chest and said, Teach, who cares? <laughs> who cares? That's apathetic. One of the greatest crimes someone can commit is to demonstrate that same apathetic and un attitude and unconcern that is so characteristic of, of people in modern society. I believe the United States is at this moment a nation at risk because we have been apathetic. We have elected people to govern us that are determined to discredit and discard the essential values that have made these United States the exceptional nation it has been. In more and more cases, the modern church has accommodated a dumbed-down gospel and a substituted cheat entertainment for authentic worship because Christians have been apathetic. We have no one to blame but ourselves for the mess we're in because we didn't care. 
we have been apathetic. Dorothy Sayers said, Modern man believes in nothing, enjoys nothing, finds purpose in nothing, and remains alive only because there is nothing for which he will die. That wasn't Nehemiah. Nehemiah would give his life for the reconstruction of Jerusalem. Nehemiah wasn't apathetic. Nehemiah cared. Nehemiah heard that unfortunate announcement about his people suffering harassment from these Gentiles that had moved into that region around Jerusalem. And because Nehemiah was Jewish himself, he felt a strong sense of empathy for his people. Then to complicate things, the actual wall, that massive protective wall, and the strategic gates of Jerusalem had been utterly destroyed. Jerusalem was in shambles and ruins. Nehemiah heard this message and he was devastated. He fell on his face and sobbed and mourned and cried. And it's probable he did that for four months. Question, are you a crier? One of the things I admired about my father was his sensitivity to needs. My father was committed to others. He was an incredible servant. That explained the reason there were hundreds and hundreds of people that attended his funeral. He was so sensitive in his 70s. I remember he couldn't pray in public and not become emotional. He cried. And those tears were sincere. I want to resemble my father more than I do. I don't want to be stoic, insensitive, unemotional. I'm convinced one of the greatest, most unfortunate tragedies of the church are dry-eyed Christians. Some of us have heard these phrases, be a man, don't cry, suck it up, don't be a crybaby. Please understand that the most masculine man to ever step foot on this earth was Jesus Christ. He was more of a man than any man has ever been. The Bible never mentions if Jesus laughed. Although he probably did, Jesus was fully human in addition to being God, so he experienced the full range of human emotions, and that would include laughter. The Bible doesn't record if Jesus laughed, but the Bible does mention three separate instances where Jesus cried. He was so moved, he cried. I want to be a crier just as Jesus was, just as Nehemiah was. Remember, the things that break the heart of God should also break our hearts. Please notice Nehemiah brought his need to God, and that happened starting in verse 4 and going through verse 11. Verse 4, one more time. So it was when I, this is Nehemiah, heard these words. Heard these words, meaning he heard this tragic announcement from his brother and his friends about Jerusalem and the inhabitants there. After hearing that, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Notice that Nehemiah first, up front, brought his need to God. Unlike Nehemiah, part of the reason we don't pray more often than we do is because, at least in a subconscious sense, we don't think we need to pray more than we do. The normal first human reaction, as a human, our first reaction on a normal basis to a serious need is, how can I solve this problem? How can I fix this? That is our normal first human reaction. Not Nehemiah. Nehemiah believed praying should be a first thought and not an afterthought. 
Nehemiah's first reaction after this announcement was to bring his need to God. Nehemiah was aware of the fact that this situation at Jerusalem was much bigger than he was. Notice in the final part of this verse that Nehemiah fasted and prayed. Fasting and prayer are mentioned together often throughout Scripture. I know some people that find this humorous. I have a friend who says dumb stuff like, I know, let's fast and pray. I'll pray, you fast. <laughs> or, or let's pray and have fast food. Um, that's, I have strange friends. Anyway, fasting, though, is not a trivial and significant matter. I have an entire sermon on fasting. But the purpose of fasting, although fasting means to abstain from eating, the purpose of fasting is not to refrain from eating per se, but to use the time we would normally spend in preparing and eating a meal, use that time instead to pray. I have also found during fasting my stomach growls loud and uh, from being hungry, and that acts as a reminder to pray. Fasting is demonstrating to God our willingness to sacrifice some of our own essential human needs in order to give God more of our undivided attention. So Nehemiah has cried, he has wept, he has mourned, and now he was fasting and he was praying. He was bringing this important and urgent need to God. It was apparent that Nehemiah's favorite position in facing a problem was the kneeling position. Nehemiah heard about this knee, and his first response was to drop to his knees to pray. A.J. Gordon said, there is more you can do after you pray. There is nothing more you can do until you pray. Meaning nothing more you can do that has eternal value until you pray. If we are attempting to do something significant, something of a spiritual nature, and we don't pray then essentially we are attempting to do that something in our own humanness. Because we haven't solicited God for His assistance. Now there are some extremely gifted people in this room. People who have incredible abilities and can do much. But it doesn't matter. We should want to see not just what we are able to do in and of ourselves. We should want to see what God is able to do because God can do so much more than we can. And we cannot see what God can do apart from appealing to God to do that something through prayer. Needs should drive us to our needs. Needs should drive us to our knees in prayer. It did for Nehemiah. This book mentions nine specific instances where Nehemiah prayed. Nehemiah's first recorded prayer starts here, Nehemiah 1, at verse 5, and goes through verse 11. So let's address Nehemiah's first prayer. Notice that this prayer can be divided up into four basic parts, four components to this prayer. Verse 5, well, let me read number one, Nehemiah acknowledged who God is. Nehemiah acknowledged who God is, and this is found in verse 5. And I said, this is Nehemiah, I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God. Notice, Nehemiah addresses God as O great and awesome God. You who keep your covenant, meaning God is a promise keeper, 
and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Psalm 66, verse 3. David encouraged us, say to God, how awesome are your works through the greatness of your power. Psalm 145, verse 3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 145, verse 6, men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts and I will declare your greatness. Psalm 150, verse 2, praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Understand something. Our God, this God we claim to worship, is an awesome and great God. And Nehemiah recognized his awesome greatness. Now, some secular people, I've heard this, some secular people refer to God as the big man upstairs. That's analogous to blasphemy. He's not just a big man upstairs. He is God. And he should be respected and reverenced as God. So Nehemiah addressed God himself. God is a great and awesome being. And Nehemiah, right up front at the beginning of this prayer, acknowledged that. From a human perspective, Nehemiah understood that this Jerusalem fiasco was a near impossible situation. But at the same time, Nehemiah recognized that human limitations and human boundaries do not limit God. Someone said prayer can do anything God can do, and God can do anything. Recognizing the awesome greatness of God puts our own problems into proper perspective. I've said this before. If we acknowledge that God enabled Moses in some three million Israelites to cross the Red Sea on dry ground, then it's no problem asking that same God who did that to help us meet another need that is some less miraculous than crossing the Red Sea, such as finding a better job, such as securing a loan on a house, such as graduating from college, such as finding a mate in marriage. I mean, this is nothing compared to God. If God can do the miraculous throughout Scripture, He can meet our need. Recognizing the greatness of God puts our needs and our problems into proper perspectives. We might have a giant problem, but remember, God is a giant killer. I heard about a mouse that jumped up, climbed up on the back of a massive elephant. This elephant decided to take a stroll through the jungle, and he came to a bridge. He crossed the bridge, and as he did, this bridge, under the weight of this huge animal, just vibrated and shook and trembled as if it might break into pieces. It didn't, but it seemed as though it might. And after crossing the bridge and arriving on the other side, this mouse, sitting on top of this huge pachyderm, said, Man, did we ever shake that bridge! Understand, if things start shaking and moving around in our favor, it's not us doing the shaking. It's God. Nehemiah recognized, first of all, just who God is and who God is in relation to his problem at Jerusalem. Second, Nehemiah confessed his part in the problem. Nehemiah confessed his part in the problem. In part one of this prayer... Nehemiah acknowledged who God is, and in part two, Nehemiah acknowledged who he was. And notice that he considered himself to be a part of this 
problem. One of the essential ingredients that is sometimes missing from our praying is the confession of our participation in sin. Nehemiah, though, confessed his part to this problem. Notice verse 6. Please let your ear, God, be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant himself, which I pray before you now day and night. Notice, Nehemiah is praying about this situation 24-7, nonstop, day and night. For the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we, notice, he includes himself, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. Verse 7, we Again, including himself. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Please notice the precise language Nehemiah has used. He indicted his nation of sin of which he was a part of that nation. Although he had never been to Jerusalem, he was Jewish. He was an Israelite. He was a part of that. And he also indicted himself. In verse 6 he said, We have sinned against you, God. Both my father's house and I have sinned. In verse 7, We have acted very corruptly against you, God. Nehemiah included himself. Notice though, Nehemiah had not, even though he's in Babylon, born there during the exile period, and now he's a part of the Media Persian Empire, he had never never rejected God. Nehemiah had never participated in paganism, but he still admitted his part in being responsible for his nation's sin. Nehemiah recognized that he had not, had not been obedient to God in all instances at, and at all times, and no one has. No one. So he considered himself a co-participant in his people's sin and rebellion against God. Nehemiah didn't sit there and go, this is what our people deserve. They deserve this. They deserve this harassment from these Gentiles. They deserve this you know, inability to reestablish Jerusalem because of the protective wall is in ruins. They deserve this. It's their fault. He didn't put all the blame on his people. Nehemiah acknowledged the fact that he also had a part in this problem. The problem is most people are into the blame game. And in particular, this is called blame shifting. Blame shifting is shifting the blame for an offense or sin from off ourselves onto someone else. We just shift the blame over some. Blame shifting is actually a practice that originated in the Garden of Eden. Notice Genesis 3 verse 9. This this was after the first human sin committed in the garden. This was post-original sin. Verse 9, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Verse 10, So he, Adam, the first man, said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Verse 11, And he, God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Verse 12, now notice how the first man, Adam, responds to this questioning from God. Then the man said, the woman, Eve, whom you, God, 
gave to be with me. She gave me of the tree, and I ate. Verse 13, And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Do you understand what just happened there? Notice that soon after the original sin had just been committed, God confronted Adam. Instead of being responsible for his own sin of disobedience, eating the forbidden fruit, instead of being responsible, the first man blamed the first woman for giving him the fruit. And then notice, he blamed God for giving him that woman. And then the woman turned around and blamed the serpent for enticing her to eat that fruit. Neither one of them wanted to accept responsibility for their actions. And that set in motion this unending practice of blame shifting. The manager of a minor league baseball team was so disgusted with his center fielder's performance, he ordered him into the dugout. And he then assumed that position himself inserted himself into the game the first ball hit into center field took a bad hop hit the manager in the head so the hitter was on base with an error the next one was a high fly ball he lost in the glare of the sun until it bounced off the center field wall that drove in a run and the batter ended up at third base a triple the third hit was a hard line drive that he charged unfortunately It went between his hands and bounced to the warning track, scoring the runner from third. Once the inning had ended, he was furious. He ran to the dugout, grabbed the center fielder by the uniform, and screamed, You idiot! You idiot! You have center field so messed up that even I can't do anything with it. (laughs) This manager wouldn't accept responsibility for his own ineptness. He shifted the blame to where it didn't belong. This happens in a societal sense all the time. On a more serious, a more serious example was from 1980, where a Boston court acquitted, notice acquitted, Michael Tyndall of using his plane to bring illegal drugs into the United States. So he had flown a plane full of illegal drugs to the U.S. He'd been arrested and tried, but he was acquitted because Tyndall's attorneys argued that he was an unfortunate victim of, quote, action addict syndrome. Addict addict syndrome is an emotional disorder that causes a person to crave dangerous, thrilling situations so that according to this logic, Tyndall was not a drug dealer. He was just a thrill seeker. So he gets off. Another example, an Oregon man that tried to kill his ex-wife was also acquitted on the grounds that he suffered from depression suicide syndrome. Depression suicide syndrome, another emotional disorder that causes someone to deliberately commit a serious crime with the unconscious goal of being called or killed himself. So the argument was he didn't actually want to shoot and kill his wife. He subconsciously just wanted the police to shoot him. And he got off. Another instance of psychological blame shifting came from Columbine High School, 1999, where students Eric Harris and Dylan Klebo a strange antisocial behavior and murderous acts. Fifteen died in that shooting. Another 24 were injured. 
Those murderous acts were blamed on another emotional problem called attachment disorder. Attachment disorder, according to psychologists, rendered them unable to attach themselves to peers, other students. And this social alienation caused resentment in them and resulted in the rejection and murder of the people that they weren't able to attach themselves to. This is called blame shifting. A more recent example of this foolishness was Ethan Couch, a teenager from Texas who in 2013 drove intoxicated and in the process killed four innocent people and injured some others. One of the fatalities was a youth pastor. He was driving 60 to 70 miles per hour in a 40 mile per hour zone. He had a blood alcohol content of 0.24, three times the legal limit. Intoxication manslaughter carries a prison sentence there of up to 20 years. But Ethan Couch didn't receive a prison sentence. He never went to prison. He was sentenced instead to 10 years of probation because the defense argued that he was the product of affluenza. Affluenza from affluent. Some psychologists created that word affluenza to describe a condition where being raised in a rich and affluent household prevents children from understanding the difference between actions and consequences. Because in most cases, children from affluent households are never held accountable for their actions. The judge's lenient sentence outraged the victim's families and baffled legal experts. So, Affluenza was said to be his problem. It really wasn't him. Couldn't help it. It was where he was raised and how he was raised. And so the cycle babble and blame shifting goes on and on and on. Listen to this principle. Successful people share the credit and accept the blame. People that do things of significance are people that share the credit and accept the blame. Whereas losers are accusers and excusers. Losers are accusers and excusers, accusing someone else of causing the problem and making excuses as to why they just aren't responsible. Some parents blame the children. Almost all children blame the parents. Some husbands blame the wife. Some wives put all the blame on the husbands. Some pastors blame the congregation. Some congregations blame the pastor. One pastor said to me, my people think I'm an exceptional pastor. I said, really? You're exceptional? What does that mean? He said, they take exception to almost everything I say and do. (laughs) Someone said, if a pastor has been in a particular church for three years or more, then he doesn't have a problem that he is not, in a sense, responsible for. That is a frightening consideration. 99.9999% of the time, interpersonal problems, interrelational problems, are a two-way street. There are no totally innocent parties in the purest sense of the term. Still, there are people that refuse to admit to wrongdoing. I have had women say to me in a counseling session, going through some serious marriage conflict, my husband has never once apologized to me. Not once, ever. Now it's not because he was perfect and didn't need to apologize. 
It was because he was proudful and refused to apologize. In contrast to this sort of irresponsible attitude, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther said, quote, I look inside myself and I see hell. The most often quoted preacher in modern times, Charles Spurgeon from London said, quote, even my repentance needs repenting of. Those were humble men. People, if there's a problem, we need to examine ourselves and admit the part we had in that problem. Even if we represent just 1% of the problem, then we're still 100% responsible for that 1%. Number three. Nehemiah reminded God of his promise. Nehemiah reminded God of his promise. Verse 8. He's continuing to pray. Remember, I pray, the word that you, God, commanded your servant Moses. Say, if you are unfaithful, meaning if you are unfaithful to God, I will scatter you among the nations. Verse 9. But... If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you are cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. Verse 10. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Through this parable, prayer, Nehemiah has reminded God of a promise God had made to ancient Israel centuries earlier through the prophet Moses. Nehemiah actually quoted in this prayer statements Moses had made from Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 30. In quoting those passages as part of this prayer, Nehemiah was claiming a promise God had made to him and to his people through Moses. There were two parts to this promise. First, if Israel sinned, this is part one, if Israel sinned and acted in rebellion and disobedience to God, then God promised he would scatter them into a foreign land. And God had done that. Remember from last time, we said in 931 B.C., the United Nation of Israel, consisting of 12 original tribes, was divided into two separate parts. A northern part consisting of ten tribes and a southern part consisting of two tribes. The Assyrians captured the northern kingdom, those ten tribes that had continued to be called Israel, captured them and assimilated them into their empire. And then the Babylonians, we just read in our series through Daniel. The Babylonians captured the southern kingdom of Judah. And so the Jewish people had basically been brought captive into foreign lands because of their own disobedience. And that all happened as a result of the first part of this promise. God said, if you do this, this is how I'm going to respond. And he did. Now second though, a second part, if the people repented and returned to God in obedience, then God would permit them to return to the land. The first part of this promise has been fulfilled because ancient, those ancient Israelites had sinned against God and had been brought captive into Babylon. But God promised He would permit them to return if those Israelites would cooperate with Him once again. Now, by the time of Nehemiah's prayer, the second part of this promise hadn't been totally fulfilled. Remember, there had been two earlier partial returns under Zerubbabel and Ezra 
two partial returns to Jerusalem, so there were more Jewish people there now. But as a whole, the people hadn't been permitted to return to the land, and that's because in order to reestablish themselves in Jerusalem, this protective wall had to be rebuilt. The people just couldn't reestablish homes there unless these people felt safe. So Nehemiah was still anticipating the final fulfillment of the second part of this promise. Essentially, he said, God, I'm counting on you to keep that promise you made to us through Moses. Remember, you said through Moses that you would permit us to go back to return to the land and rebuild our land, Jerusalem, if, you, if we would be obedient to you. We're being obedient to you, so please do that. Remember, God, you promised. You promised, so please keep that promise. Someone has counted there are exactly 7,487 promises, 7,487 promises made from God to man that are recorded in the Bible. Some of those promises were never intended for us. And this was one of those. The particular promise Nehemiah was counting on in this passage was intended only for those ancient Jewish people that had been in exile and wanted to return to the land. It isn't applicable to us. So Nehemiah, in quoting scripture, was demonstrating his faith in God. He said, God, I'm aware of that promise. I haven't forgotten it. I want you to remember that promise. And I want you to keep that commitment you, you, you made to us through Moses in quoting scripture back to God and that's a good suggestion periodically quote scripture back to God as Nehemiah did if we do that we're essentially telling God we're aware of what he said we're aware of what he promised and we believe what he said and we're counting on him to fulfill that promise it's true God is omniscient omniscience means he has all knowledge. So God doesn't need to be reminded of anything because God has never forgotten anything. God doesn't need to be reminded, but it is still important that we reiterate to him those promises he has made to us in Scripture. One reason is because a verbal reiteration of his promises reinforces our faith in him. Verbalizing to God in prayer what he has promised us in Scripture is evidence we actually know what he has promised and we believe what he has said and promised and we're counting on him to fulfill that promise. God appreciates us reminding him of his promises. We have all seen this in action. All of us have attended school. A teacher or a professor in college, you know, gives a lecture, teaches a lesson. And after teaching a lesson, then assigns the students a test over the material the teacher has just taught and presented. Understand that those students who heard that lesson took notes. Then, through the means of completing that examination, that test, are reiterating and regurgitating back to the teacher what the teacher had first given to them. And teachers appreciate that. And so does God. That is essentially what we're doing when we quote Scripture to God through prayer. We are acknowledging that we are aware of what God has said concerning us, and we are acknowledging that we believe what God has said concerning us. And that strengthens our faith in God. It strengthens our ability to trust Him. Number four, and we're finished. Number four, Nehemiah tells God his specific need. Nehemiah tells God his specific need. Don't miss this. Requesting specific needs from God will receive from God specific answers. 
requesting specific needs from God will receive from God specific answers. That's found in verse 11. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, meaning himself, Nehemiah, and to the prayer of your servants, plural, probably meaning Nehemiah's brother and his friends and others that were aware of the situation at Jerusalem, who desire to fear your name, and let your servant, Nehemiah, prosper this day, I pray. Meaning, God help me to be successful in this thing. And grant him, Nehemiah, mercy in the sight of this man. This man was Artaxerxes, for I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah is asking God for a specific need. In a human sense, there's only one person that could facilitate Nehemiah being able to return to Jerusalem and rebuild that protective wall. And that one person was Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes had the authority to issue a decree permitting Nehemiah to take a sabbatical from his job as a cupbearer and then permit him to solicit thousands more to assist him in the reconstruction of that wall around Jerusalem. So Nehemiah's intention was to go to Artaxerxes and request permission from him to do that. But before he does, notice, before he does that, Nehemiah first asks God to prepare Artaxerxes' heart for when he does speak to him about getting permission to go to Jerusalem. Notice that his requesting permission from Artaxerxes was first preceded by prayer. In verse 11, Nehemiah said to God, Grant him, meaning himself, mercy in the sight of this man, meaning Artaxerxes. Nehemiah said, God, Artaxerxes is the only man in the media Persian Empire that can give me permission to bring a construction crew to Jerusalem and, and to rebuild this wall. And I'm going to ask him permission to do that. But before I do, please prepare his heart to be receptive to my request. Please encourage him to say yes, 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 yes. Question, why would Nehemiah pray that prayer? Because Artaxerxes was the singular head of the media Persian Empire. Instead of being compassionate and flexible and cooperative and merciful, the Medes and Persians as a people were sometimes rigid and inflexible. Most people have heard the phrase, the law of the Medes and Persians. That meant if the Medes and Persians and in particular Artaxerxes, or another ruler, had decided on something, then consider that decision in concrete. It could not be changed. It was irrevocable and irreversible. Artaxerxes had this reputation for being a stubborn person, and Nehemiah was aware of that. And that's the reason he said, God, please grant me mercy when I go see Artaxerxes. God answered that prayer. God changed the mind of Artaxerxes through Nehemiah's prayer. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, said this, It is possible to move men through God using prayer alone. It is possible to move men through God using prayer alone. Um, a woman said to me just recently, she's going through some serious marital conflict, and her husband is misbehaving and uh, her approach has been counterproductive she nags and nags and nags and nags and nags and nags and nags nagging doesn't work do you know how I know I've tried it 
nagging, nagging, nagging. And then it escalates into arguing and, you know, getting upset and getting all emotional. And I said to her, I agree, he needs to change. But listen to me, I'm a male, I understand. You're not going to change him. You are not going to change him. Stop the nagging, stop the arguing, shut your mouth, and get on your knees fast and pray to God like your life depended on it. Let God change him, because you can't. And I believe that. It is a demonstrable fact. Prayer changes people. First, it changes us. It changes those that pray. And second, it changes the person we're praying for. Prayer does change people. It's amazing how often people, though in wanting a change in someone, resort to manipulation and even deceitfulness in an attempt to change someone. And if that person would just pray for that someone that is needing change, then God could change them himself. And that's what Nehemiah did. How did Nehemiah change Artaxerxes' mind? How did he convince Artaxerxes to release him and thousands of other men to rebuild Jerusalem wall? He didn't. He didn't convince Artaxerxes. God did. God did in response to Nehemiah's prayer. Listen to this. Someone said, there's nothing so small that God is not interested in. And there's nothing so big he cannot help us with. There is nothing so small God is not interested in. And that's the reason often I ask God, please help me find my keys. I can't find my keys. I need help finding my keys. I do this all the time. And he always helps me find my keys. There is nothing so small God is not interested in. And there is nothing so big he cannot help us with. I believe that. In the first half of the 19th century, a man named George Mueller both founded and managed three orphanages in England. Get this, all together during his tenure in his lifetime, operating orphanages, apart from government assistance, he housed and fed and clothed and educated 10,023 orphans. Think through that number. He raised 10,023 orphans. And he operated those orphanages solely on the principle of faith. He never solicited funds. He never said to someone, I need this. I need this much money next month. I need, I need that. We're behind. I need more money. He never said that once. He, he just said, I tell God about my needs, and God meets my needs. Meaning, I just pray about my needs, and God meets my needs. I might add that Mr. Mueller read his Bible through more than 200 times, and half of those times on his knees. According to historians, after examining Mueller's journals and diaries, it was found he had recorded some 50 thousand specific answers to prayer in his lifetime 50,000 specific answers to prayer in his lifetime as recorded in his journals one of those specific answers was this incredible account at one of his orphanages one morning the plates and cups and bowls on the table were empty completely empty there was no food in the cupboard and there was no money to buy food there was nothing. 
The children were standing at the table waiting for their morning meal when Mueller said, Children, you know we, we must be in time for school. Lifting his hand toward heaven, he said, Dear Father, Father, we thank thee for what thou art going to give us to eat. There's nothing there. Father, thank, I thank thee for what thou art going to give us to eat. The moment he finished praying, there was a knock at the door. The baker stood there and said, Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I just felt that you didn't have enough bread for breakfast. And the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at 2 a.m. and baked some fresh bread, and I have bought it, brought it with me. Mueller profusely thanked the gentleman for the bread. No sooner had this transpired when there was a second knock on the door. It was the milkman. He announced that his milk cart had just broken down right in front of the orphanage, and he would like to give the children his cans of fresh milk so he could empty his wagon and repair it. So Mr. Mueller's children had breakfast that morning. That's what happens when praying is our first thought and not an afterthought.